You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. As always, let's begin this week's podcast with some emails and messages from you guys. Uh, let's begin on Facebook with a listener named Timothy who posted this right after last week's podcast went up. He writes, Dave, I appreciate your pod and your outlook on the show. Plus, your pod is pretty awesome, but I am putting the show in a timeout. <laughs> this week, we finally jumped the shark. When Rick thought the small hole on the side of was intriguing, Mr. Jumped to Conclusions thought it was full of treasure. Really? Yeah, some civilizations spent months building a road only to stash the loot in a random small hole. Narrator, come on. This show could be great with slightly better writing and a new narrator. Tim, I'm not going to argue for or against your sentiment here and your conclusions, but I, I wanted to start with your comment because I felt it was a great time right at the top of the show here because I am going to really go off on it at the end <laughs> to remind you and everyone else that's listening here of what I've been saying since the very beginning of this season, take take it for what you you will, you know, uh, you know, and I've been saying this before even the season began, and that is this: keep in mind the History Channel is going to deliver to us the viewers as many episodes this season, or at least they're going to come very very close to as many episodes, you know, as they have the last two or three seasons, and they're doing that even though the dig season was essentially cut in half by the COVID nineteen pandemic. And also keep in mind, whatever projects the team had been planning for this past season, and you know, that planning begins in the fall of in this particular year, 2019, and continues only really until weeks before the season would begin, before shooting begins in the spring. Well, those plans that they had, really right up until only weeks before the, the cameras would show up, had to either be cut or significantly changed or rethought all of that stuff due to the challenges brought to the show and to the team by the pandemic. My point is this. Maybe I think we need to all have a little bit more patience this year with this show than in past years. Um, I think by the end of the season, I'm going to talk about what I would have done if I were them, uh, but I'm going to give them a couple more weeks to finish this out. But that's just kind of how I feel right now. Anyway, Tim, I get what you're saying, and you're not wrong. My wife, who has been, and I've said this the last few seasons, she's been in on this thing forever, you know, but now she's completely, almost completely checked out after seven plus years of sitting on the couch with me, getting excited the day before and watching the show. But for me, I, I don't think it's time yet to tune out. But honestly, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest here. I can't imagine me ever tuning out, so maybe I'm not the one to comment, right? A show about Oak Island is always going to keep my interest, no matter how bad the narration might be, but maybe I'm different. Um, but just remember, Tim, if you don't want to watch anymore, but you want to follow what's going on, you can always just keep tuning in here to the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Thanks for the message. Thank you for listening. Keep up the faith. Let's go to an email from Jesse, who is great, always great fun listening to Jesse's emails. This one, he writes, uh, I'm with you right now. Ditto from last week's podcast. What is the significance of hitting wood at 87 to 90 feet? 
Who would tunnel above the money pit to try and get to it? They are making a big deal about it. What's exciting about it? Jesse. Well, Jesse, just because I don't understand what they are on to here with this project doesn't mean it isn't fascinating or important, right? I mean, it's just very strange in my mind, finding a tunnel 10 feet or so above where the money pit is supposed to be before the collapse. To me, though, that makes this whole project even more intriguing, and I think it does to you, too. Perhaps I didn't express that sentiment properly last week about how I really feel about this, but my thought is, and boy, that's really going to be rocked here in a few minutes, but my thought is this is weird. This is undocumented. This is in a weird place. doesn't make any sense. What could this all be? Um, you know, I just don't know why you would build a tunnel there. It's, again, you wouldn't be avoiding the flooding. You'd be running right into it. And avoiding the flooding seems to be the only reason why you wouldn't go just straight down, right, into where you think this is this is supposed to be. Um, so I don't see a searcher doing this. You know, I don't see why you would bother digging a horizontal tunnel leading you straight into a booby trap. So, Jesse, I do think this project is incredible. I mean, what the hell is this? But who would – and the thing is, you know, I, I, let me say it like this. Who would do this and why – I want to get some answers, but there is going to be a lot more to come on this in just a few minutes. So basically, <laughs> Jesse, when I read your email, that's how I felt. And now, obviously, we all feel I don't think I've changed that sentiment, which is why I wanted to express it. Um, and again, we're going to get to this towards the end of the, the show here. OK, let's go to another friend of ours, Jock. And Jesse, Jock, these guys, I mean, these guys are always keeping keeping us in uh, on the air here with some great content. Uh, and Jock always sends me homework. <laughs> he has again here. He writes, Hi, Dave. Thanks for the compliments on your show this week. And thanks again for all your time. I know you're busy with your son, keeping your wife sitting with you on the couch to watch the show, taking notes, planning and running the podcast, answering emails, your regular job as a teacher, and playing music. Is that it? Oh, yeah, another podcast. Well, let me interrupt you here, Jock. Um, First of all, thank you. Uh, and since you asked, I am a professional musician by trade and a coach for multiple sports at a local high school here. And I am thankfully no longer serving as de facto kindergarten teacher for my son, whose school is now back to full-time in-person learning, at least for the time being. You never know what the future might bring. And that was the biggest issue for me facing this podcast uh, and being able to produce it and do all the stuff that needed to be done up until now. So that's why the show's cutting out on Thursdays again, and we're getting, you know, we're, the shows are a little longer and all that because I just don't have that challenge. Um, I'm also going to forever have a new appreciation and respect for kindergarten teachers. I could barely get by, and I only had one kid to teach. How the hell they handle an entire classroom is absolutely beyond me. It is a special talent and one I don't have. And yes, since you mentioned other podcasts, shameless plug time, I have two more. I do a podcast called Radio Harambe with my brother, which is all about Disney's Animal Kingdom, if you're a fan of Walt Disney World, and other Disney-related topics, but mostly about the Animal Kingdom. He is a former 20-year uh, uh, volunteer docent at the Bronx Zoo and a sort of a naturalist himself, so we do some great stuff about the animals and the park and all that stuff. And also, I do another one called Sit Downs and Sessions with my friend Chris Poe. Chris and I, Chris has been a radio DJ for decades, and he is a lifelong friend. Uh, on that show, him and I just basically sit down over a couple of beers, and we talk about you know what you would talk about at a bar, politics, history. We both love the paranormal. Uh, we talk a lot about music, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Basically, anything two guys would talk about while sitting at a bar holding a couple of pints. So if you find either of those two intriguing, you can find both shows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, 
Jack continues, enough of the shameless plugs. This week's episode featured James McQuiston, who mentioned Nova Scotia having a Plymouth connection. I am not disputing this, but check out this simple Google about the Massachusetts Bay Colony. I did not know that Nova Scotia was originally grouped in with the original colony back in 1691 to 96. Now, let me interrupt here again. Jock sent me a Wikipedia page about the Massachusetts Bay Colony. I'm not going to put the link up. You can do it yourself. It's easy enough. Um, And it points out that, yes, indeed, Nova Scotia was originally part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Essentially, the colony, if you can envision this, extended, you know maybe a hundred miles inland or so. I'm not exactly sure what the number is inland. Essentially from the, the Southern portion of it was Martha's Vineyard, what we call Martha's Vineyard now in Nantucket all the way up this, you know, and that's just off the Southern shore of Cape God all the way up the Eastern shore of North America, including Maine and Massachusetts and across over into Nova Scotia, all the way up to Cape Breton Island. Jock continues. I just read the first page of the Harris McPhee book, which mentions the part, that part of the history. This explains a lot about all those early dates and artifacts. I'm sure there must have been trade going back and forth. It was in 1759 that the British gave a land grant called the Shoreham Grant that allowed migrants from Massachusetts to settle the chester Mahome Bay area. Again, it's 1759. So there is a lot of very early English history from at least the late 1600s to the date of, the, of 1795 when the money pit was discovered. No wonder all of those artifacts have been found. With Mahone Bay being connected with the Massachusetts Bay Colony, there would have been significant ship traffic, so I cannot believe that someone would put, a, put in a significant road, Smith's Cove docks, and massive tunnel network to quote-unquote hide and flood a treasure. Perhaps that's why there was a signal cannon to signal the hundreds of workers to hide behind the trees when a sail was seen on the horizon. Well, let me stop again here. First of all, Jack, I think you're pulling my leg a bit because uh, certainly the signal cannon would give away <laughs> would give away people working on there a lot more than the people would, right? Uh, but your point there is a good one other than that. I, I mean, you can't hide the road and use it at the same time. So this thing was either constructed for a very short term and specific use or probably more likely, we just don't have a good historical understanding of the area around the time this road was in use and built. But it appears you're on the case, so uh, let's see what you come up with in the future here. Jock continues, anyway. As the usual, as usual, the narration spins a signal cannon and cannonballs into protecting the treasure, but all that stuff would have been standard on ships back then. I'm surprised they're not finding a lot of musket balls, etc. Yes, they would need those to hunt deer, wild turkeys, etc. And yeah, the caster looks like something I could get from my local hardware store. It looks pretty modern with a break you engage with your foot. All the best. Cheers, Jock. And, and with regards to the caster, and thank you again, Jock, for, for, for your email and for sending me some great information. Um, anyway, with regards to the caster, uh, well, I mean, one of the things is in this episode, we're about to get to it, there's no follow-up. There's no mention of the caster. So I would think that like the lipstick cover from a couple of weeks ago, uh, this was just another thing found that in the end was really nothing. The other question your email raises for me is, where is the rest of that signal cannon? (laughs) All they found were the legs? Where's the cannon itself? Seems weird. Okay, let's head all the way to Norway and hear from a listener named Henrik. I know this makes me sound really kind of old school, but I'm forever fascinated that this podcast actually reaches listeners in Norway. 
I don't do anything for it to do that. That's am- it amazes me. Anyway, he writes, hi, only just came across your podcast. Great work. Love the el- elaboration around my favorite TV show. On the last one, a point was made regarding the inaccuracies of carbon dating wood. It was claimed that the core of the tree will test older than the outer growth. How is that true? If the, co- if the earlier claim, namely that the carbon dating tells you when the tree died, holds water? Question mark. Sure. The core started growing maybe hundreds of years earlier than the outer, but I suppose the entire tree died pretty close to the day it was felled. Another question was, why don't they drop cameras down four-inch holes they're currently drilling? My take on that may be wrong, but I expect the drill is followed closely by a casing to avoid collapse when the core is withdrawn. If so, a camera would show any, wouldn't show anything but the inside of the casing. Anyway, keep it up. I'll follow from now on Henrik in Norway. Well, first of all, Henrik, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to write in. Um, and please, you know, you have any fellow Oak Islanders over there, share the show around to them. I would love to hear more from, <laughs> from Norway. I guess the question I would add is this, what exactly are we dating, right? Does when it died even come into the picture with carbon dating? Now we know it does with dendrochronology, but I'm not so sure with C14, I don't really know. I mean, it's absolutely true that the inside of the tree is older, Right. So if we carbon dated just that, because the outside portion was essentially shaved off, what exactly are we getting from this dating? I, I don't know that. I'm not an expert on carbon on C14 dating. So if anybody is out there, you know, please let me know. I don't, I don't, again, we think about when it died. It's going to date when it died. And that in my head is dendrochronology because that will tell you because the rings stop growing. But does C14 do the same thing? I don't really know. It's hard to say. I mean, if you're looking at C14 dating of a fossil, are you looking at when the fossil died? Or are you looking at when it was active, just a ballpark? You know, if it's just a ballpark, it makes all the sense in the world. I don't know. I mean, maybe I can find out. It's a great question. Unfortunately, Henrik, I don't have the answer. So keep listening and maybe we'll get them as we go on this week. And I also think you might be onto something about the challenges in putting the camera down the hole. Um, but he, let me just repeat this from last week because I said this last week, and and this is kind of my feeling on that question. And I honestly do feel this. If they could do that, they would. For all we know, they've done it, and we just haven't seen it because there's nothing there. My point is this: they have that technology at their disposal. We know that they've done this before, so it just doesn't make any sense to me that they would. I don't know forget or need me to remind them. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I just think it's not a viable option for whatever reason. And trying to figure out what the reason is, is secondary in my mind. That's just not something that I'm all that interested in. Henrik, again, thank you so much. Keep listening. Share the show with any of your fellow Oak Island fans over in, uh, in Norway. Okay. Let's go to a listener named Mickey. Mickey asked some great basic questions that I I always like to take the time to repeat some of these things because I think it's really important stuff. He writes, Dave, I've been watching the show since the beginning, but I just recently discovered your podcast and have been enjoying it. Good job. I have a few questions that may have been answered on a previous podcast. If so, sorry. One, are we to assume that depositors dug into the island by hand shovels, dropped the treasure in, and then filled the hole back in by hand? 
And if there truly is treasure buried deep on the island, why are the Laginas having such a hard time getting to it with all their modern technology and excavating equipment? Okay, he's got three questions. I'm going to stop here and answer them one by one. Mickey, it's a great question. And it's one that, believe it or not, a lot of people ask, even people who are kind of experts on the show, you know? Yes, that is what we are to believe, the hand shovel thing, that people came here and dug this by basically hand tools. But keep in mind, people have been building and digging massive underground workings for centuries. The Egyptians, the Romans, heck, even the Knights Templar. In fact, if you go back to October of 2019 and listen to this two-part podcast, uh, two-part podcast that I did on the history of the Knights Templar with the uh, historian and author Tony McMahon, who's just a fantastic listen, uh, I asked him if the work done to create the supposed treasure vault, you know, hypothetically, if it was done by the Knights Templar, do you think the Knights Templar could pull it off? And his answer was something like on their lunch break, frankly, meaning these guys did way bigger and much harder than this, than what we think the Oak Island depositors did at, you know, on the island. And they did all this stuff, massive underground tunnels and all this kind of workings using medieval tools to do it. You know, so yes, we do believe that and we think that is more than likely or more than possible, I should say. And to answer your questions about the Laginas not finding it, I'll say three things. One, treasure hunters have come to Oak Island convinced that they had the quote-unquote modern technology to crack the mystery, and they've been doing that for 150 years. Two, keep in mind the location of the money pit has been lost for decades, so we no longer know if anyone's even looking in the right place. (laughs) And three, ask any treasure hunter anywhere And they will say just because they haven't found it doesn't mean it isn't there. Okay, Mickey continues. Two, why do they keep drilling six-inch holes in a grid pattern? Why not get a massive excavator and dig the whole area? Well, Mickey, for two reasons. One, it's been done already. Um, And it moved. It it, it was uh, the idea of building a massive crater was done by Robert Dunfield in the 1960s. And it proved nearly impossible and incredibly destructive. One thing we know is there is a lot of water under the surface, whether you believe it's natural or a booby trap, okay? It's there. We know that. So digging a 100-plus-foot crater with excavators and bulldozers is far from an easy, certainly not a safe thing to do. But hang on. (laughs) There is technology to do this. We might be getting that soon. We've seen the guys talk about it. But the problem is, and this is my second reason, it's incredibly expensive. I mean, incredibly expensive. In order to do it safely and successfully, it is an enormous project that is amazingly expensive. And maybe one of the things I can do in the off season is try to find somebody who can talk to us about that, what this might be and how they can do it. Just a, just a thought. I don't know. See if I can find something. Uh, these guys we have on the island now, let's put it this way, are the first people in the island's history with the funds to pull that off. Keep that in mind. If a big dig, a real big dig, not Robert Dunfield and his excavators and bulldozers, but a real honest-to-goodness, truly big dig is done on this island, these are the guys to do it. 
but it's not cheap and it's not easy. <laughs> so they really don't want to do it if they can avoid it. But that may be how where we're going here. Three, after finding the box trains at the shoreline a few seasons back, why didn't they just start digging and following the direction they go like they are now doing with the Stone Road? Thanks in advance for your answers, Mickey. Mickey, again, that idea that you're talking about has been tried and it proved impossible. People have been poking holes trying to find the exact location and direction of these box trains for, again, decades and decades. The idea of following them from the beach to the money pit, I think, is a much larger project than you might realize. It would require a huge trench and an incredibly deep one, too, as one that gets deep, progressively deeper and deeper. And you're asking about doing it with water. It's just very hard. Um, plus, most people believe the drains themselves have probably long since collapsed, certainly not stable by any means. Um, anyway, there you go. Great, great email, Mickey. I love that stuff. <laughs> That's all for the questions this week. A big thank you, as always, to everyone who sent in an email. Keep them coming. If you'd like to email me and have your questions answered on this future pod on a future podcast, please send them to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Okay, it's time now to discuss Season 8, Episode 20 of The Curse of Oak Island called Fire in the Hole. A little side note, our, our listener Jesse, who I mentioned before, um, sent me a screenshot of, uh, he was looking at the Oak Island IMDB page, and it says there that there are two more episodes left after this one, which would mean the finale would air on April 13th. And that seems about right, that seems about the time it's ended in past years. Let's see. I think, well, I mean, we'll certainly know next week whether or not it's the finale. And as I've mentioned a couple times before, we usually hear a couple episodes before the finale about the weather coming in, and we're getting that now, right? We're hearing a lot of that now about the, you know, having to do things quickly because the season's closing and all that kind of stuff. So it makes all the sense in the world. So we may only have two episodes left. Anyway, this one, let's start with um, Lot 26. Let's do that. Uh, and this this is the site of Samuel Ball's old property. And we see Gary detecting uh, there with Michael John, who we've seen a couple times in the past few weeks. And Gary is using his uh, dreaded GPX 5000. This is that big detector. Uh, we've talked about this more than we probably need to because he said at one point that there's a it detects tunnels underground. So now everybody wants to know why he doesn't just use that to detect the tunnels. Um, we've answered that before. But um, here he is with the big one. Don't know why he's using that one, but he is. Anyway, uh, he doesn't say why he's using it there. Uh, and and he the, the way he says it is he, he makes us believe that, you know, he wants to do a real good job. So he's going to take out the big detector. So one makes you wonder why he doesn't use it all the time if it's better. But who knows? Anyway, they find what Gary calls a baby ox shoe. This is really the year of the ox shoe, right? I mean, uh, we <laughs> having I don't think ever seen them before. We seem to see them every other week now. He calls this one the baby shoe. So later on in the show, we see Jack and uh, Jack Begley and Charles Barkhouse taking this little ox shoe up to Carmen Leg, the blacksmithing expert in Nova Scotia, who says it is Scottish in origin and dates around 1610 through the 1740s. And that loud cheering you heard probably came from our friend James McQuiston the author and researcher whose theory on Oak Island involves 
you guessed it, the Scots in the 1600s. I mean, if you're James McQuiston, man, it just doesn't get any better than that little scene right there, right? It just just brings it all together nicely. Um, I'm not going to say a lot more on this uh, because we've talked to James a few times. We've talked about his theory a lot, and uh, it is an incredible theory, <laughs> One of certainly one of the most sensible theories if you're looking for a treasure theory and not a skeptical theory. Um, and he's written tons of books on them on this theory, and the theory is constantly evolving. And so rather than explain it all to you here, what I'll tell you to do is uh, hit your link in the show notes, go to Amazon, and get the last couple of books. I'd get the last two or three. Um, they are simply mind-blowing some of them and the uh the theory here really is great it's all great reading and honestly besides McQuiston being on to something here uh you know it is it is a book that all Oak Island fans should consider required reading Okay, let's head over now to the money pit. Uh, this section is going to, a little little warning for you, is going to involve a lot of Dave carrying on and um, really a lot of complaining about the show. <laughs> and not just about the show, about the team this week. Um, so, you know, everybody's okay with complaining about uh, the, the writing and the narration, but this is actually going to be a complaint about the team. I apologize in advance for anybody who is, um, you know, doesn't agree. But anyway, let's begin. Um, we start at the Money Pit where we see Steve Guptill, Charles Barkhouse, and uh, geologist Terry Matheson continuing to follow this potential tunnel at 87 feet, uh, at a depth of 87 feet in this northwestern quadrant. It's the same one we've been talking about over the last few weeks. The one I mentioned during the email portion of the show is a project that I find absolutely fascinating. Um, this is a great lead, uh, but hang on. <laughs> it's about to take a very unexpected plot twist. Let me put it that way. So now they're digging a new hole. They're calling it CD7, another battleship coordination here, uh, which is 13 feet east of C1. Nice little detail they gave us. What they say they're doing is looking for the eastern edge of the tunnel. So they think they're trying to find the eastern end of this tunnel that they feel they're on. So the long and short of it is CD7, this new hole looking for the eastern edge, finds nothing. In fact, I mean, basically zero. Terry says 91 feet and nothing to report. So that kind of ends that scene. And then later on in the show, we go to a war room meeting. And in this meeting, we see Marty Lagina with Craig Tester and Jack Begley. Craig has the map of the Money Pit area out, and he's talking about how this CD7 essentially didn't find anything. And then the team all sits around and decides basically that they're going to abandon this project of following this tunnel and move on to something else. And, and I'm sitting there with my mouth open, literally gasping, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, this is how the team is going to follow a lead like this? Let me just stop again. This is a tunnel in a place that they have been telling us and that I can tell you as well is undocumented at a depth that makes absolutely no sense and that they've dated to be potentially before the construction of the money pit, right? Didn't we get that information? So that's what we have. 
And now we looking for the eastern edge of it, we miss it. I mean, you're looking for an edge. Isn't there a good chance you're going to miss it? And we decide instead to just move on to something else. I mean, <laughs> one bad hole and we call it quits? You've got to be kidding me. That This simply, this is just has to be an absolutely terrible job by the editors here. It just has to be. I refuse to believe that that there that this isn't that there weren't more holes than just CD7 that showed them some other reason some better more logical reason to abandon this fascinating project anyway that's what they decide to do so we're done with the tunnel at 87 feet i would love to get answers somehow some way about why they actually decided to abandon it for the love of god tell me it's not because they found one hole that missed it because there had to be more that missed it and there must be some reason to believe maybe they found documentation to tell them what it could be. And they're just not letting it letting us into it. That's the maddening thing here, right? So here's my criticism for both the team and the show. I think the team is making a bad decision. But I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that the show is actually not telling us how they made that decision. Let's hope. Instead, they decide to move on and drill and focus on another target. This is over in Smith's Cove, and I'll get into that in just a second because I just thought of something. Uh, Another thing about this is I thought this entire project was about finding data for the big dig. That's what they said at the start of the season. They just happened to move things around in the money pit area to follow different leads and stuff. And But the whole thing was to do a drilling project in the money pit area that gives us information to try to target where the money pit might be so that they can do a big dig in the right spot. Well, the right spot isn't in Smith's Cove, <laughs> right? So why are we stopping this now? It, it's incredible. Anyway, um, what we can say before I get into what this new project is, what we can say f- with total certainty is 2020 will come up, uh, it'll come and go with nothing of importance or even of interest found in the Money Pit area as far as I'm concerned. We thought we were onto something in the Northwest, they found nothing. We thought we were onto some crazy tunnel, we've abandoned that. It's not important enough to continue, to to get as much information as we can before we have to stop. It's not important enough. I mean, it's another year without knowing where the Money Pit is, or where it might have moved, or anything like that. This is absolutely amazing to me. Okay, I've ranted enough. Anyway, this new target comes from this Behringer survey. We talked about that a lot at the beginning of the year. It's an old survey that Dan Blankenship had done. And now, according to the story, according to what they're telling us, Dan had this survey done, found a bunch of stuff, and he never followed up on it. Now, as I said at the beginning of the survey, and I'm going to say again here, um. Dan was not someone who didn't follow up on things. So I find this whole survey and this whole story a little dubious. I don't really know for sure what it is. It just seems illogical to me. Anyway, uh, on this survey, they found four non-ferrous metal targets, basically a non-iron target, um, a target that could be precious metal or something along those lines. Um, And what I'll do is I'll post a screenshot of the quick graphic they put up of where these targets are on the island so you can see where they're going to go here and it looks like from a quick scene at the end 
that they're going to focus their attention for this year on the money pit, or I'm sorry, on the Smith's Cove targets that you see there. Now, at the end of the scene, Craig kind of shrugs. I said I was done ranting. (laughs) Maybe I'm not. Craig kind of shrugs and says that this was all really down to a time issue, making this decision to abandon the search for the 87-foot tunnel. Like they They just don't have time to continue following this 87-foot tunnel lead. I mean, really? A time issue? It seems to me that if there's time to dig these other targets in Smith's Cove from the survey that Dan didn't care about, there's obviously time to dig a few more holes in the Money Pit area and maybe find where this 87-foot tunnel goes, where it might lead to. Listen, folks, if I sound exasperated, I am. I'm just dumbfounded by this decision. I really am. Okay. (laughs) Let's head now over to the swamp. Now, before I get into what happened on the episode, I just want to let you guys in on something. Um, I just want to relay you part of a conversation I had with Gordon Fader. Gordon is uh, the author, one of the co-authors of the book Oak Island Mystery Solved. Uh, this is the book that is, I would say it's sort of the leading skeptical, certainly skeptical in the in the way of treasure being there, um, this le- leading skeptical theory. Um, great book. Uh, and he, Gordon has been, he's quite active on social media in the different Oak Island um, social media groups and stuff. And he's been speaking quite a bit on these boards and on these different places about these so boards that makes me sound so old on these Facebook groups about his thoughts on what this year's work in the swamp might mean and what sort of putting it in context with the rest of the things it means. So I asked him if he could just sort of sum up to me um, what his thoughts are on the swamp, and I think it gives us a different perspective than what we hear on the show. So this is what he said. This is this is this is what he wrote to me. One, and he puts out 12 different points here. One, the swamp is a natural feature, and the consequence of sea level rise between two egg-shaped drumlins. Drumlins are, (laughs) how do I explain a drumlin? It is is sort of the hump in the island, so you could see how the island looks like there's two, uh, two different islands with the swamp being a passage between the two, while the left and right side, the east and west side you're seeing, those are drumlins. So... One, and absolutely one island can be made out of multiple drumlins. Anyway, two, in the swamp, there are four man-made features. The road to the middle by Nolan, the road crossing the north part, the gravel area in the northeast filled in by Nolan, and the new gravel flat swamp crossing region in the southeast. The swamp cores dated back to 300 years. It was likely a pond or lake early on may have been used to graze animals or hold them. Fence posts might be what you're seeing with the surveying. There is a six-inch layer of gray clay at the eye that appears to have been used as a clay supply. Would not call it a mine. Now, let me stop there. Again, I've said this a few times. Uh, um, uh, He would know better than me uh, and certainly has researched it more than I have. Uh, It was this blue clay... Uh, it was extracted, according to Aaron Taylor, in the eye of the swamp. Um, I've called it a mine. If it's not big enough for that, it makes all the sense in the world. Uh, he continues, seven, there is no ship in the swamp as it could not get there as the water was never deep enough and the sea level is well known and was lower by one foot for every hundred years. So the sea's risen, folks, right? It hasn't 
lowered. So the swamp, the middle of the swamp, would have been further away from the shoreline hundreds of years ago, not closer. Make sense? Anyway, he continues. Eight, the date of the swamp crossing gravel area is not known yet and could be old or young. There's evidence for both. Nine, there is no road up the side of the swamp as it is likely a natural feature. Interesting. Let's see. I'm going to hold on to that to the end of the year and see if that if he still believes that. Ten, lots of construction and earth movement has gone on in this area and needs to be properly sorted. Let me stop here again. 100% correct. There is a lot of stuff that's been done here. A lot of things Fred Nolan never said anything about. A lot of, I mean, we're hearing now Anthony Graves lived over there and did some work over there. We need it sorted. We need to know what it all is. We need to know what we're looking at instead of just looking at all these things and saying, oh, this must be from the Knights Templar. (laughs) Anyway, he continues. 11, the roads do not lead to the money pit. We'll see. I'm not going to disagree with him yet. 12, and this is his last one. We have been studying the gravel platform crossing the southeast area and have some new ideas on what it may be. More to come, not what people think it was. Thank you, Gordon Fader and Joy Steele. Those are the two who write the, who wrote this book. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for where you can purchase this book. So I want you to go out and if you're really interested in the theory, get his book and get a couple of James McQuiston's books. If you want to know exactly which ones, uh, send me an email. And I'll tell you which ones based on what you're looking to hear. I mean, I'd get them all, <laughs> start from the beginning. But uh, I think the last two or three, I got to get that number right, uh, is probably where you're getting the best clue of where his ideas are going now. So, But I'll also put the link in the show notes for Gordon Fader's book. It's a fascinating theory. It's certainly one the History Channel will never talk about, right? We're never going to hear it discussed or proved or unproven. So there you go. Different perspective from an incredibly smart guy on the swamp, um, which is something for us to consider as we close out the season, right? All right, so let's talk about what we saw in this episode over at the swamp. Now that we seem to have punted the money pit entirely, (laughs) I guess this is going to be the focus of the rest of the season. The episode begins with a war room discussion about the possible foundation found last week. And on a side note, Steve Guptill says here that the road extends about 460 feet. For whatever that's worth, neat little detail. I love stuff like that. Anyway, so last week, we saw a small opening. We We talked about this in the email section, in this little foundation, which led to a lot of speculation about Anthony Graves hiding treasure and all this kind of stuff. And we get more of that here. I have one question about this legend of Graves, and the legend is he paid for things locally with Spanish coins or something like that. And there's no truth. There's no proof of that. It's just legend. Uh, In fact, I think his family knows nothing about that. But if it is true, I guess the follow-up question I would have is, was there anything weird about these coins? I mean, this is an era before currency exchange and all that. I mean, a gold coin comes in, it's worth a certain amount to whoever it is in gold, right? Can't imagine it would have been collectible in the early 1800s. And especially in maritime areas, people paid with all sorts of currency. It's traded back and forth. You know, a a, a trader, a pirate didn't get, or somebody like that didn't get off their boat and then go to the bank and exchange their Spanish coins for British coins when they happened to be in Nova Scotia. That just didn't happen. You paid for them with what you had. Um, so I'm sure Anthony Graves paying for things in Spanish coins might have been weird, 
Was it really? <laughs> I mean, was there anything particularly strange about those coins? Were they very old? Were they very rare? Did they have, you know, Captain Jack Sparrow's face on it? I, whatever it might be, I don't know, right? But that question never gets answered. Uh, he was a farmer. He's selling his goods. If he sold those goods to a Spanish trader or to somebody who just came from the Caribbean where a lot of Spanish money changes hands, is it weird that he would then have that? Nobody ever asks that question. <laughs> and if it is weird... What happened to these coins after they changed hands? Is there a legend of somebody somewhere else who paid for something with Spanish coins that they got from Anthony Graves? It just all seems very fishy to me. Anyway, apparently, we now know there are multiple quote-unquote voids in this foundation, which we hear in this scene, um, this little war room scene, which is... Um, and, and they also tell us that it's about two feet tall, this foundation, and another interesting little detail is that we find out it's been covered by what they say is essentially three feet of soil. It's really hard to believe. It's just very, it's all very strange. It's also hard to know exactly what they're talking about here and where what they're talking about is. Um, they don't really point that all out as they go through it. They can do a lot better job with that. So basically what this meeting is telling us is that they're going to continue digging here under the idea that this might be where Graves hid his treasure, although we have, again, absolutely no reason to believe he had a treasure, just some Spanish coins that he went to the store and paid for whatever he wanted shoes with. Who knows? Uh, and one of which maybe he dropped in the swamp. See season one for that. Anyway, while digging um, in this area, Miri Amaralt, David Frenetti are digging together and they find some charcoal and evidence of burning. They bring over Aaron Taylor, and he calls it either a sign that whatever this structure is they're on was burned down, or that this was like a hearth. He calls it a hearth, basically like a fireplace, small furnace, that kind of thing, a heating source for a, for an indoor, for anything, really. <laughs> um, later, they bring in the swamp doctor, Dr. Ian Spooner, and he looks at this charcoal feature, and Spooner says that, quote, this amount of burning here looks pretty intense, end quote. And he seems to think that it might be for something of an industrial nature. No definitive answer. Who knows, right? Could be a heating source for a house. Could be something to use for blacksmithing, for somebody locally to make these ox shoes that we see everywhere now. Who knows? We just don't know. And here again, we see this other really fascinating part of all this, which is when Taylor points out that despite of all these things, despite finding the road, this obvious foundation, this heat source, this intense heat, heat source, there are zero artifacts that seem to go with it. There's nothing. There's no nails. There's no, there's nothing. There's no coins. <laughs> there's almost nothing here. Taylor says there is a strangeness to all of this. I love the way he says this. And he, he uses the phrase secretive component to describe all the things they're finding and basically not finding, right? And he even uses the word eerie. He says it's eerie to not find some kind of evidence of humans living and daily life and all that kind of stuff in this area, despite the fact that we're finding a road, uh, a foundation, uh, a fireplace, you know, that kind of stuff. The team then starts talking about how big all of this seems to be, right? All this work done. And I think it's Taylor that says, um, and it was a great way he put it, what would possess someone to do all this work in the swamp for something that isn't really important? 
So his point being that, I mean, despite the fact that we have no artifacts and we can't figure out what this is, it was obviously really a big deal to whoever was doing this because why would you do all this for something that isn't important, something that isn't big? You, you wouldn't do all this just so you can go to the beach and have a swim is basically what his point is, right? Later, we finally do get some artifacts. It's hard to say exactly where they are in relation to where the, all this stuff is. Um, some kind of evidence of humans living and working here. Um, and it is a couple of pieces of hand-painted pottery. Maybe they'll start to find more artifacts soon, and maybe we'll find out that there's some in certain areas, and not who knows. It appears the goal here for the last few episodes of this season, assuming they follow this particular goal to the end, we don't know that anymore, it could end at any moment as soon as they stop finding things, is to find where this road leads, to go back to uh, Mr. Fader talking about um, not leading to the money pit. It appears from what the team's talking about here that at this point, they feel it is heading inland and to the east, which would be in the general direction of the money pit. Let's see. Um, I've said this before. This is really a fascinating project, but I just don't know what it is. And I just have no confidence at this point, no evidence to believe at this point that it's going to tell us anything about the treasure. Okay, let's back up a bit. Earlier in the show... There was a scene with Gary Drayton, Billy Gerhart, and Scott Barlow working in the swamp. And Barlow finds a piece of a tree root that's obviously been cut in among the stones. He seems fairly certain that it was placed there. I'm not sure why he was so certain that didn't, he didn't really go into that detail. Uh, anyway, the, the whole episode ends with another war room meeting. We had quite a few of them um, where Craig Tester, again, has results for the carbon dating on two pieces of wood found in the swamp. Now, I don't know if one of those is this piece that we saw here, so I'm not sure if they're connected. It seems like they were at least trying to show that they found pieces of wood. That's why they showed that scene. Hard to say. Anyway, Craig says the results go from 1489 to 1654, 1600s. And cue the cheers from the McQuiston clan. All right, that's going to do it uh, for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Again, shameless plug, I have another podcast uh, called Sit Downs and Sessions. Me and my friend, radio host Chris Post, sit down over a drink or two. We talk pubs, music, politics, some great musician uh, interviews over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we talk about the paranormal a little bit. We'll get into that more now, too. Uh, give it a listen. Sit down in sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the places you get uh, your podcasts. And if you're enjoying this one, Digging Oak Island, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your shows. Uh, a big thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star rating already. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to do that. And also, thank you especially for the kind words. Don't forget... You can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. It's where I dump a lot of links and pictures that I get from listeners or, you know, from the show. Uh, you can find us by just going to your search bar and putting in at Digging Oak Island. And again, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send to me directly, you could do so via email, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you send me an email or a direct message on social media, uh, I may just answer it here on the podcast or a comment. <laughs> I may just do it right here. If you don't want your message read, just make a note of that for me, and uh, I'll try to respond to you directly. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.